Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Creation Podcast, the show where we discuss the science that confirms scripture. I'm your host, Trey, and my guest today is ICR's president, Dr. Randy Galuza. It's a pleasure to have you here, Dr. Galuza. Yes, it's very nice to be here. Absolutely. Uh, do you mind if I call you Dr. G? We call you Dr. G around here sometimes. No, Ma- no, that's what I'm known as. Okay. And, uh, it's Make a lot it a easier. To, yeah, it's easier <laughs> to say than Galuza. Of course. All right. So, Dr. G, you're a you're a medical doctor, and I'm sure that you have a fairly robust understanding of the human body and how it works. Um, when I was younger, I remember there being quite a stir, typically in my my elementary years, about something that everyone was calling vestigial organs. Uh, the, the phrase is still floating around in my brain. Uh, what does that mean? What is that concept? Yeah. You know, it wasn't just while you were younger that people were talking about vestigial organs. In fact, they're still talking about vestigial organs. Wow. And we as creationists, we should jump on this right away. Because this whole concept that you were taught as a kid about vestigial organs was one of the, the major evidences for evolution, major evolutionary changes, like from one creature to another type of creature. And vestigial organs was, and in the thinking of many people, still a really strong evidence for that. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, it was a monster, huge blunder. It has been a blunder, and we should be on the rooftops shouting that. This whole idea that you were taught as a kid. It's not real. It's not real. It's a real real major blunder. So what it was, was the idea that in your body, in fact, probably better to say, as we look at your body, and as we look at any human body, it's like a museum of your evolutionary past. Mm. And as we look at one part of it or another part of it, we're seeing leftover remnants of like your ape-like ancestry, or maybe even going back to when humans were supposedly a fish, way back in the fish stage, of all those kinds of things. And that the body was this was this museum where we could actually trace evolutionary heritage. And scientists would look at a certain organ in your body, maybe they didn't know exactly what it was, and they would uh, declare that it's a leftover remnant. Mm. And leftover in the sense that they usually said early on that it was, had, it was an organ that had no function. It was a functionless organ. And therefore, why would you have this functionless organ unless you had evolved? So they used it as one, evidence for evolution, and they used it as two, evidence against intelligent design, these so-called functionless organs in your body. That's that's wild to me because it's like the human body is so complex, it's just you would think that there would be further study to to determine like what these organs actually do. Uh, But let's bring it back a little bit further. So... Evolutionary scientists think that we have body parts and organs that once served a purpose but are now purposeless. I mean, where does where does that idea come from? Well, it actually goes all the way goes all the way back towards uh, Charles Darwin, uh, who really championed initially those ideas that these organs, which at the, at the time they presumed had no function, mm-hmm. were vestiges. And therefore, they were remnants, or they were organs that were reduced in size. Maybe they would say they're not totally functionless, but they're not doing their 
primary function, which would have been in your evolutionary ancestor. So it's either reduced in size in you or it's something completely functionless altogether. Therefore, they came up with the term vestigial. And at one time, there were dozens of these, well over 100, 150 of these organs on your body, features that they thought were all remnants from your evolutionary past and were not really serving any purpose on your body. That's a lot. Uh, I would... uh my thought is if there were 150 parts of the human body that didn't work, then like, honestly, the human body doesn't work. That's, that's quite a, quite a large number. How has the concept of these vestigial body parts or organs or how has that changed over time? I know that I've heard of at least a few instances of discoveries of, uh, purposes of these organs after the fact, like they'd been declared vestigial organs in the past, but now they're like, Oh, wait a minute. Actually, it does have a purpose. Uh, how, how does that go? Well, that's how science advances. Is Fortunately, some people did not write all these organs off as vestigial, and somebody kept researching them, and they found functions for them. However, the whole concept, and this is why worldviews really matter, mm-hmm. the whole concept that you had vestigial organs did impact science. It did slow down research and whether it was an organ or even cells that they thought were vestigial or certain portions of your genome that they thought were vestigial or left over, it does impact science. And maybe we should, for the people who are listening, just name a couple of these, which some of people will obviously know. Sure. Obviously, the most famous one is, your, is the human appendix, mm-hmm. your appendix. That was vestigial. In fact, I go to conferences and there are medical doctors that I meet who still believe that the appendix is vestigial. They, they're not necessarily even evolutionists. It's just that they, what they were taught in med school or in biology classes has not been corrected in their thinking yet. Times have changed. Uh, right? Times have changed a lot. Tonsils were thought to be vestigial. Your spleen was thought to be vestigial. The bone that you and I are sitting on right now uh, called the tailbone, which is a misnomer because it has nothing to do with a tail. Mm. That was considered to be vestigial. Portions of your bo- of your hair were considered to be vestigial. The fact that you mine had, are. <laughs> yeah, that's I. I, I, I was kind of hesitant to bring that up. That's all right. You know, I claim at, it. <laughs> right, hair at different stages of development, features on your ears. I mean, you can just go all over the body, and there were certain things that were just thought to be complete remnants. So let's just take one for, for the for the for the sake of time, mm-hmm. let's just concentrate on the appendix okay. as as representative of all of these so-called vestigial organs. I would and, say it's the most well-known. It's yeah. the most well-known, and it's uh, it was one that was a poster child for evolution. The thing that people who are listening to us need to know is that the whole concept of vestigial organs was not a backwater evolutionary story. It was a concept which was championed by the world's leading evolutionists. Mm. The best evolutionists out there were the ones who are promoting this whole idea of vestigial organs up until within the last decade, even on the appendix. So who am I talking about here? I'm talking about some of your good friends. Jerry Coyne mm-hmm. advocated for vestigial organs. He, he, his, his most famous work, Why Evolution is True, champions the appendix as a vestigial organ. Ernst Mayer, probably the world's leading evolutionist for a time, 
was a major advocate that the appendix was a vestigial organ. The president for the American Academy for the Advancement of Sciences. That's a mouthful. <laughs> that is. Francis Ayel, in his, in his most famous work, championed the appendix as a vestigial organ. And Darwin, in his 1874 book, The Descent of Man, pointed to the appendix as a vestigial organ. Mm. And so you don't have the also-rans pointing this out. You have your major evolutionary players. Let's talk about the appendix a little further, if you don't mind. For those of us who who aren't aware, what purpose does the appendix actually play? If it's not purposeless, other than to just some people have one that gets sick too much and then they have to get it removed, right? Um, right. What, what does it actually do? Yeah, well, picking up on your last phrase there, it was one of the major arguments by evolutionists when you said it gets sick and therefore it has to be removed. Uh, that was an argument that many of these major evolutionists said is, why would a... Why would a tender, loving God put something in us when its major function is to just make us sick? And so many people have died from an appendicitis in those areas. So it was, the fact that it can get diseased was used also as a major argument in favor of evolution and against intelligent design there. So what is the, the purpose of an appendix? Well, one, it is not. It is not a cecum as you would find in certain other animals where they would, um, they're, they're vegetative animals, they eat, the, they eat their meal, and that ground-up vegetative matter goes down into their intestinal tract and is held in a pouch called a cecum mm. where bacteria break it down and they release the nutrients into their body. So it's, it's, it's a storage area where the food is actually help, is digested by bacteria in order for them to live. So it was assumed that what we have as an appendix was a vestigial cecum, something left over from these ruminants, these type of animals like that. Right. But it's not, not at all. In fact, it's a very, uh, it's not vital, obviously we can live without it, but it is an important regulatory organ that is situated in a very strategic area right at the junction of your small intestine and your large intestine. And it has tissue in there, which can amp actually sample. It's part of what we would call our immune system, or I would say it's part of our interface system. It, it can sample bacteria that are going by. And all of that system's function in many ways is to regulate the bacteria that are in your large intestine, the gut. And your body wants to regulate the types and amounts that are there. And so the appendix actually serves like a little century it's not there to destroy any bacteria, but it does sample them. Mm -hmm. And signals are sent into the immune system to regulate those things. And another important function that it has is it's, it serves as a little storehouse or warehouse for what we would call good bacteria that we all want to have in our gut that we need for us. And your body actually regularly seeds the large intestine with those bacteria and this appendix is a little storehouse for those. Mm. So it's kind of constantly re releasing these into the large intestine, keeping a, a presence there of the so-called good bacteria. And the reason why I keep on saying so-called is because we really don't know which ones are the good ones. There's so many there, right. so many there, that it's really hard to slice and dice the good ones from the bad ones because maybe in any one context, what we would say is a bad one, it could be a good one for us. And 
So it's really hard to just label something as good and bad. So there are, are two important functions of it that we know. It serves as a storehouse um, for good bacteria. For instance, if I gave you a large dose of antibiotics, uh, it, could, it could wipe out uh, the bacteria in your gut. And sometimes you have to be reseeded with uh, other bacteria. It's called a fecal transplant. But your appendix is actually serving that function for you, and it serves the function as a sentry. I had no idea. Uh, so maybe maybe you can provide some clarity as to why, in particular, this appendix, why does it cause so many problems in mm -hmm. people in this day and age? It can cause a problem if it gets plugged, and that's what usually causes an appendicitis. Okay. It's, it's a one-way pouch there, and if you were to stop the opening of that pouch um, by a piece of food or a large seed or something that gets in it. I saw an x-ray of a, a little boy whose dad hunted for rabbits with a shotgun, and he wasn't cl completely clearing all the pellets out of the food, and the little shotgun pellets were getting in their food, and <clears throat> these little pellets were getting stuck in this boy's appendix. Wow. So when you block that opening off, the bacteria are in there, they're reproducing. They're doing what they're supposed to do, but now they can't get out. They've got to go somewhere. They've got to go somewhere, and that appendix begins to swell, mm. and it gets infected, and it can burst and release that whole realm, uh, that whole plethora, we'll just say, of bacteria rather than into your gut. It releases them into your abdominal cavity. Gotcha. And then you can get sick and die from that. So that's how it happens. But when it's functioning properly, or if, you're, if your diet is right and you're not getting shotgun pellets, for instance, it's doing what it needs to do. Right. What about the concept of like poor design in the body? I've, I've, I've read some things here and there, and, and people say, well, if I was designing the body, I would design mm -hmm. it like this because this doesn't make any sense. And clearly this shows that there is no real design. This is all random because the body isn't perfect. Uh, what, what would you say to that? Well, let's go back and just retrace this idea of the appendix. For, and, and I'll just jump off of that mm -hmm. as we go and we talk about this poor design. We, we as creationists, sometimes we move on too fast and we don't definitively say these evolutionists were wrong. Mm. They were absolutely wrong. And they were wrong about the appendix. They were wrong about the spleen. They were wrong about tonsils. They were wrong about the tailbone, and on and on. All of, all of these claims were factually wrong. Right. And you shouldn't just be able to move away from that and still be able to claim some scientific authority when so many of the things you said were demonstrated to be totally wrong. Right. Now, I know as many times as creationists, and since we're Christians, we... We have this loving idea that we just want to, you know, forgive and forget. Right. But in this particular case, since worldviews matter, we can't just forgive and forget. These evolutionists, and not the second-rate players, but the major players, were totally wrong. And this whole argument for evolution has come crashing down. And what we actually see is good evidence for astounding engineering. So we should champion this. And we shouldn't just let it just get swept under the rug by evolutionists. They were factually wrong. 
And if they want to just keep trotting this argument out, it can get beat down over and over again. So this plays into your second question. Why would they trot out another argument that says, hey, this is bad design? Mm -hmm. I mean, what chutzpah? Yeah. What chutzpah that I've been wrong on all these other claims. And now I know. And now I know that this eye is wired backwards or this nerve in your neck is taking too long a route. And if I was an engineer, I would have never have designed it like that. And on and on. Um, they make these claims about bad design, and they are in the exact same category as vestigial organs. Mm. They're claims from ignorance. Claims from ignorance. Meaning, I, I wouldn't have done it like this, or I can't figure out why it was done like this. Therefore, it's vestigial, or second part, therefore, it's bad design. And what I would say to everybody listening to the podcast is, wait, wait. The, the bias should be that this is probably a really good design because the engineering in a body, the engineering in a cell is over-the-top great. And two, the bias should be in favor of good design because those who have made those assertions have been dead wrong in the past. So why should we believe them? They have a track record. They have a track record of failure, of abject failure in these claims. And three... A lot of times, these people are talking from just pure ignorance, not just of what the, the function of this might be. They're talking from ignorance that they don't even know what they're talking about in a biological sense. They don't have expertise in these areas. They've never done surgery on it. They've never manipulated. They don't work with it. So they're just talking from absolute ignorance. In other words, you're not going to find a lot of surgeons who work on things who don't look inside the body and say, this is just an absolute Marvel. And you can go to our website at icr.org and you can find papers, well-researched papers that explain the function of an appendix or push back against the idea of bad design. There's one, this nerve in your neck that I was talking about mm -hmm. called the recurrent laryngeal nerve, where it explains the function of that all the way from the time you're an embryo up until an adult. And if it was designed like the way the critics would, would design it, you would lose peristaltic activity in your esophagus on one side because it innervates part of the esophagus as it goes all the way up. Wow. And if it was designed like they claim, then part of your vascular system would not function right because even as an embryo, it's providing traction on an important little temporary vessel in there in order for that to develop properly. So quick Thoughtless dismissals should be dismissed by us as well. When we look, there's incredible design to everything we see. And just like everything on your body, every part on it has multiple functions. Not a single function, mm. multiple functions. This is another thing that people should get in, in their brain. Just like any incredibly engineered thing, every part on your body doesn't serve one thing. Your skin you can look at it, multiple functions right off that. And, and as you sit there and think through parts in your body, you'll begin to realize, wow, this does this, and it does this, and it does this. Very efficient design. Very efficient, and it's doing them all incredibly well. So we have an optimized design where everything is carrying its load 
in multiple ways. And of course, that points to a designer, a creator, someone who can put together all these complex pieces that we only wish that we can understand. And in the future, as technology gets better and as we learn more, we probably will learn more of those things, you know. But, right. Um, do you have any closing thoughts on, on this subject? Yeah, I would add when you said it points to a designer or a creator, um, I just want to jump on that and puff it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. It points to an engineer. Yes. It points to an engineer who knows functions and he knows solutions. And it points to an engineer who does things efficiently and it points to an engineer who does things in the optimal way. And that engineer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we look at the body, we see we see things that describe the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. It it lets us know that he is an absolute genius. Yes. He when sometimes people have a hard time thinking about the omniscience of Christ. How could he know everything? But when you look at the body and you look at the details that are there that pile up ad nauseum, it's easy to see a mind that can know everything. In addition to telling us about his genius, it tells us about his wisdom. We see an engineer who can take multiple competing needs and balance them perfectly. That's wisdom. Mm -hmm. And we see another characteristic of his love, that he gives us things that work together and they, they work properly, they're for our good, they're for our health, and many things in your body, of course, are even for our pleasure as well. So we see a God in the in the person of the Lord Jesus, who's a genius, he's wise, and he's loving. And for anybody to dare mock that by calling something he made bad design or vestigial is really an affront. Mm -hmm. And we as Christians should see it that way, and we should call them out when they're dead wrong. Absolutely. Wow, that's uh, thanks for really bringing that home. It, it, it's easy to forget to, to separate the science from you know the fact of like who God is and 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 who who Jesus is and and the role that He plays in all of this. It's it's very easy to just dig into the minutia and and forget that big picture. That's so, right. Uh, thank you so much for that, and thank you so much for being on the show. And we look forward to having you back on again. Well, thank you. Absolutely. And to all of our listeners and viewers, thank you so much for joining us. You can, of course, find this podcast on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Trey, and we'll see you next time on The Creation Podcast.